Of all the jobs I've had flying helicopters, my former role as an air ambulance pilot stands out to me. Those several years were as challenging as they were rewarding. There's a certain joy in using your passion, this love of flying, for a positive effect. To know you played a role in providing your passenger with the best chance of survival. Joining me today are Tom Neff and Peter Anderson. Tom and Peter are recently hired pilots at STARS, an air ambulance organization providing care to rural, remote, and indigenous communities across Western Canada. I met Tom and Peter at our Airbus training facility in Grand Prairie. Speaking to them, I was reminded of my own past in a role like theirs. I wanted to learn more about STARS as an organization and about Tom and Peter as individuals. In this episode of Push to Talk, we'll look at air ambulance operations in the remote reaches of Canada. Tom and Peter will speak about their new positions at STARS and give us a background on the organization. We'll break down some of the technical aspects of flying in such a remote environment and discuss the mental element of flying air ambulance, how a sense of community can give pilots relief in emotionally challenging roles, and much more. I'm Bruce Webb, and this is Push to Talk, Episode 18, Air Ambulance in Western Canada with Tom Neff and Peter Anderson. I'd like to welcome Tom Neff and Peter Anderson to the show. They are two gentlemen that I met perhaps a week ago through happenstance. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Tom and Peter both work for STARS. That's a uh, helicopter air ambulance organization based in Calgary. So, Peter, tell us what STARS is. What is STARS? STARS is the um, air ambulance service for Alberta and Saskatchewan and a little bit in uh, Manitoba. It's uh, supported mainly by the community and uh, the provincial governments. So, Tom, tell us what you're flying, how many aircraft you have. Tell us about STARS and about your experience thus far. I know you're new. Yeah, so uh, Peter and I started uh, about a month ago. Uh, We got our initial training here at Airbus on the AH-145, and that's what mainly we fly. Uh, we have uh, the D2, and we're we're going over now to the D3. How many D2s do you currently have? Do you know roughly? I believe it's uh, three or four. Currently, one is in the shop getting uh, converted to a D3. And when they hit their 800-hour inspection, that, that's where they're going to all be converted. There's a service bulletin which allows that. So, so ultimately, when you get back, all aircraft will be D3s. I mean, ostensibly, it'll take time at the 800-hour mark, but soon you'll only have D3s. Yeah, that's correct. And we're, the base we're assigned to is currently flying D3s. And I think there's two bases, one or two bases flying the D2 currently. Awesome. So STARS, what's the origin of that? What what's STARS stand for? STARS is like Shock Trauma Air Rescue Society, and it started with Dr. Powell, uh, I think in uh, 1985. There was a sooner realization that we need a helicopter to get people to the hospital. And uh, in rural Alberta, some people live quite far away from the, the hospitals, right? So, And that's where it all started. They started with one helicopter, and it just continued on from there. And it's, uh, yeah. Well, I think... Russia is the largest country by landmass in the world, and I believe second by landmass is Canada. So when you look at the geography of Canada, it is tailor-made for helicopter operations. Do you live near the base you will work at, or were you, you know, how does that work? Um, uh, Peter and I are going to be touring pilots, so we don't have to live close to the base, so we go in for eight days and go back home. Um, but the most uh, crews live close close to the bases. Like uh, there's a few in uh, Alberta, for example, Grand Prairie, Edmonton, Calgary. So they they live in the surrounding area of those bases. Yes. Right. In America, the vast majority of helicopter air ambulance is flown single pilot. Whether it's VFR or IFR, it's single pilot. But I don't believe that's the case in Canada. For stars, for certain, you're flying two pilots in the aircraft. Yeah, that's correct. And and most of the other provinces are twin engine. Two pilots, um, always. Are most of your flights VFR, summer IFR? What's the mix? Uh, it's mostly, I believe, VFR uh, with stars. Uh, we have the option, though, to do a, to do an IFR flight. Say we have to, to go somewhere and we can continue VFR after the IFR portion, for example. 
Uh, but it's always two crew, night, day, or IFR. And you're flying aided at night? Yeah, we'll be uh, going back for NVG training. Um, I know Tom has some experience. I'm new to the uh, aided night uh, flying. So right. um, we're going to do some training when we get back. Right. Bad time of year because it doesn't get dark till one in the morning, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's how the that's how it goes. This is just a, it's a fundamental issue with goggle training. Um, you know, we, we do that here in Grand Prairie as well, but in the summer, you're right. The schedule is a bit uh, skewed. Yeah. You don't start flying until like nine o'clock at night or you meet at nine and you know, you're airborne at 10 and the pilots here, the people who do that training much prefer winter. <laughs> it's a lot, it's less of a scheduled disruption. I want to go back to something when you were telling us the acronym for stars rescue is in the name now, in America, very few. Uh, and maybe no private organizations doing helicopter air ambulance also do rescue. In other words, they're doing scene work, they're doing interhospital transfers, but they're not doing what we would perceive to be rescues. In other words, uh, I'm talking about you know private organizations, not parapublic or public organizations. So they're not hoisting people, they're not doing things like that. They're strictly transporting people. Do you all do? what we would characterize as rescue? Do you have hoists installed in the aircraft? Uh, no hoists on the aircraft, no. But we do search and rescue. We we, uh, we help the police find somebody and whatnot and uh, do search and rescue patterns and, and, and so forth. But okay. we don't have a winch, no. Okay, yeah. So really, it's, it's, it's very similar to what we do in the States. Yeah, that's correct. So you're new to STARS, both of you. So I'll just start with uh, Peter. W- what's your background? What brought you to STARS and, and where did you come from? Um, I spent most of my uh, career in uh, the Ontario, province of Ontario, uh, with a little bit in the northern Canada uh, operating. Uh, more recently, I was flying uh, pri- for private owners, and now I just want to be part of that community in in, uh, in Western Canada. That it's uh, it's a great community feel for this company here. That you really you feel like you're making a difference, uh, and and it's terrific community support for stars. In, in, in these three provinces where they operate. Right. Well, it's been a very, you know, for me, and I, and I say this very sincerely, I've met a lot of the STARS pilots that come through here for training. It was a fortunate coincidence that I was able to meet you two gentlemen at a time when uh, we had time to record a podcast, so that's fantastic. At the inception of your career in aviation, what got you interested? Where, where did you start? I mean, I've always loved helicopters. That's been my thing since uh, I was young. Um, I... I I was um, went to a military conscription in Denmark, and um, they wouldn't accept me because I wear corrective lenses. So I decided to uh, move to Canada and, and pursue my dream. I started off in the maintenance side of things, um, worked there for five years, and then uh, went and got my paid for my own license, and uh, it's been progressing from there. Right. What did you learn to fly? I lear- I trained on a Schweitzer 300 CB in uh, in the greater Toronto area. And then uh, I flew tours over Niagara Falls for sometime five, six years, something like that, before I moved on awesome. to, to different, more challenging flying, I guess. Right. That's awesome. Yeah. I too uh, was civilian trained. And for the same reason, my goal was to go into the Air Force Academy. And, and I say this a little tongue in cheek, but it was a little bit like the flight surgeon told me, he said, son, you're going to make a mighty fine navigator. And I'm like, no, I'm in the pilot line. I do remember the gentleman said, oh, you'll never be a pilot. You cannot be a pilot in the Air Force without perfect vision, and you don't have perfect vision. So that, you know, 30-second period of time was the only time that I was really even close to being in the military. Like you, I wanted to fly. And if I couldn't fly in the military, I was going to have to find a different way. And like you... I paid for it myself. I started when I was 18, and I, too, flew Hughes 300s. I flew Cs, C models, uh, and B models as well, but primarily the training aircraft was a C model, so we have that in common. That's awesome. Yeah, it's terrific aircraft to, to train on, and as you can see, I'm a bit of a bigger guy, so the R-22 wasn't really an option for me. Uh, I, I went for an intro flight, and uh, it was uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's pretty small. Um, and again, my, my recollection is the Hughes 300, at least the C model, gross mass was 2050, 2050 pounds. I flew standards R22s. They, their gross mass was 1300 pounds. And then when they went to the Alpha, I guess it was, they were 1370. But yeah, I'm not a tiny person either. So me and the instructor, we can only take maybe a half a bag of gas. 
you had to be friendly. <laughs> you, you, you were definitely rubbing elbows. So your story, Tom, where did you come from? What's your, what's your background? Yeah, I grew up in uh, Switzerland in the Alps. And uh, yeah, that's where, where all my flying really started. Um, uh, we had Rega frequently fly right over top uh, because they had to go from one hospital or the base to the, uh, to the highways to, to pick somebody up that had an accident. So every time you saw Rega, you're like, oh, somebody's got hurt, right? And when I was a little boy, they literally flew over my house all the time, back and forth. And uh, that was an inspiration right there. I was like, oh, that would be, that'd be cool, right? And then uh, my mom actually, she's the reason I'm flying now because she got me a flight with uh, one of our local operators for a tour for 10 minutes. And that's my first flight and I got hooked since, right? And then it just started from there. I went to flight school right. in Switzerland and uh, paid for it by myself as well. Right. So, yeah. So it's, it is interesting, the three of us sitting here, all three really started because of a passion for aviation and uh, were able to do it in the civil world by, you know, simply paying for it. I think a lot of people have the perception that it's so costly that it's prohibitive. But, you know, it's all about choices. I have a degree from a university. Uh, I, my degree is in economics from the, from the University of Illinois. And I'm not so sure that my pilot certificates, they cost more ultimately. But I don't know that they would have cost more had I done it today. In other words, the cost at a university today is so high. I don't think that, you know, getting a commercial helicopter certificate is much more expensive, if at all. Yeah, I think you just have to uh, to set a goal and, and, and go for it, right? I think for me, too, uh, I think my parents were quite upset when I spent all this money I just saved up and I just uh, burned it on jet fuel, right? And I'm the same as you. I started on the Schweitzer, uh, on the C model. And then uh, I did my conversion here in Canada, right? And then the CB and CBI model on the Schweitzer as well. So it was a great platform to train on, but it was, you could do it if you wanted to. Right. I think that for anyone who's listening that wants to be a pilot, who's not already a pilot, you can do it. It's just a matter of, are you willing to put in the sacrifice, not only in money, but the time and the effort. If you can get people to take a demo flight, we call them demo flights where we take people out. We would do demo flights for $50 for about a 20-minute flight. Now, that was a money loser for us. But I don't believe we ever had anyone get out of the ship and say, oh, this isn't for me. Everyone came out with a smile on their face and that gleam in their eye. Once you've got a taste for that in a helicopter, everyone loves it. Everyone. And yeah, you want more. That, that's, that's a crazy thing, right? You think, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll go once and then, and then, oh, no, I like more because it's just a great feeling to do it. And then it becomes a career and that's even, that's the best thing you can get, right, after, after all this training and all that money you spent. I remember I gave a demo flight and the gentleman's name was Jim. He was a captain for United Airlines, so I flew out of the Chicago area. He was a captain for United. He was like the standby captain and he would fly three or four times a month, or he was on standby three or four times a month, and he would be the standby captain for the flight from like Chicago to Perth or Chicago to somewhere in Australia. He virtually never flew because he was a standby captain. So he had to be available to go if another crew member became ill. But, you know, he was probably at the time 50-year-old man who, you know, was making a tremendous amount of money. And he had, I remember he had a Pitts S2. He, he had a lot of little toys and he lived at a private air park in the Chicago area. Fantastic gentleman. But what sticks in my mind is he came out for a demo flight. So here's a person who has a, you know, a Pitts, a Satabria, he flies airliners. And when he got in that helicopter, he was like a kid in a candy store. And yeah, his eyes just lit up and he absolutely loved flying helicopters. And yeah, he went on, We, you know, he got his, he earned his private, his commercial and it makes you smile when you see someone who's really reached the, what people would consider to be the pinnacle of their career, and there could be nothing that would make them more happy, and they get in a helicopter, and they're giddy. Yeah, and in the helicopter, for them, it starts all over again, right? Like, we, I met a few people like that in Switzerland, too. They flew, they were Swiss air captains, and that's the same thing. They got their, their endorsement on the helicopters just for fun when they were on their time off, and they would fly around and take their friends up for rides, because, yeah, it's just, you get hooked once you're in a helicopter, I think it's, yeah. I think there's nothing, for me anyway, nothing that even closely approximates the 
the pure joy, I think, of flying a helicopter. And it's what, it's what bonds us all together, I believe. It's rare to meet a helicopter pilot who isn't passionate about flying helicopters. Yeah, and for us, especially in EMS, every day is different. There is not one day that's the same. Uh, we get sync or we go to some different location, different landing spot we've never been before. So everything starts all over. And I think that makes the job really exciting. And we're there because we're helping. We're helping somebody that's in need of, for our transport to get to the next hospital as right. soon as possible. Yeah. I think that is the joy of flying helicopter or ambulance. Yeah. I spoke to some of our colleagues and they said it's been, they've had some rewarding moments when they picked up somebody who was in rough shape. And then uh, six months later, they show up at the hangar, uh, mostly recovered, right? And uh, and just to thank thank the flight crew for for bringing them then it's this golden hour is what they're talking about right the first hour after a severe injury um that's important to yes for recovery for that person yes i think it's interesting you use the word rewarding i had to learn to use that word people would ask what my favorite time in my life was perhaps from a flying standpoint strictly flying and my answer would be flying helicopter air, air ambulance i did love that you know i would often say you know, that was the most fun I ever had flying. But I needed to change that word because it implied something that maybe wasn't kind or correct. I changed my wording to say it was the most rewarding flying I ever did, which did bring me joy. It did bring me happiness. And, and the cases like you're speaking about where you have someone who is a, has a very successful outcome from the flight, those are just magical. But we all know there are cases that don't turn out that way and they're tough sometimes. I think for me, what I did was I had to convince myself and I would just tell myself this repeatedly, we gave them the best chance in the world of survival. And sometimes it doesn't happen and you just have to take solace and comfort in knowing they had the best chance. It's, it's a tough business. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, you just do the best you can, absolutely. And the same with our medics and flight nurses, right? Like we do at the moment the absolute best we can with the time we have available. And uh, yeah, I mean, we go from there. And uh, most of the time it works, yeah. right? I think too, what made it such a rewarding time in my life, I, I'm a people person. I love people. Some of the nurses and medics that I flew with were the best of the best of the best. And I don't just mean their technical skills as nurses and medics. I mean as human beings. It makes you smile to work with people of that caliber. For nurses and medics, helicopter air ambulance is the pinnacle that, they, that many people are seeking to achieve. When they get to that level, they're awesome. And, and I think the pilots are that way as well. I think... You know, to reach that position in your life is a huge achievement. It doesn't come easy. I'll start with Peter. How many years had you been flying after you got your commercial rating? How many years have you been flying to build your competency and ability to work for an organization like STARS? How many years did that take? So I've been flying for about 25 years now, but I'd say the last 10 years is uh, I've been flying the kind of aircraft that would qualify me for STARS. Uh, a twin engine and um, with an IFR rating. So uh, the last 10 years or so, up sure. until then, it was single engine and uh, and some uh, remote locations. Right. So, But the last 10 years with the twin time, that that's I think that's the one that stood out in my resume when I applied. Sure. And I think that gives you the not only the competency in an aircraft, but kind of the emotional maturity to be doing that type of work. So, Tom, tell, tell us how many years you've been doing this in, in anticipation or leading up to not watching the Rega ship fly over, but being in that kind of ship. Um, well, I started flying in, uh, I think it's 2002 when I did my first, uh, first flight. And then um, I was just flying in the bush, building up my hours, my experience on different, uh, different aircraft. And then really, just like Peter, like about 10 years ago, 10, 11 years ago, I started flying the 212. So that was my first uh, twin-engine aircraft that was up in the Arctic. So I spent about five, six years up in the Arctic building up my experience, my decision-making skills um, to able to do this. And then I was four and a half years 
within those 10 years, I was in EMS on the AW139, and then my last position was as a captain. So that really built built everything up to this, and STARS was, was, was a goal. Uh, EMS was the goal. Right. So, um, so this will be your first position flying air ambulance? For you, it's your second position, but for Peter, it's his first position? Uh, yeah, that's correct. I, I actually live in the province where, where Tom worked, and uh, but I, I think I like the community feel more of STARS. It's, it's, sure. It, it has that, let's, uh, for lack of a better word, maybe grassroots, and, and uh, it's all terrific people that work right. there and all committed to, their, to the mission. Uh, yeah, for me, it's my second uh, uh, job in, in EMS, and so... Um, yeah, it's it's just another a different level now, right? Um, before we had uh, two paramedics in the back, and now we have a flight nurse or a doctor and a, and a medic. So it's kind of different, has a different vibe to the whole operation and a different aircraft, of right. course. Sure. So for you, Tom, when when you would were flying air ambulance in the past, can you give us an idea, the listeners, an idea of the challenges, if any, that you faced, kind of emotionally doing this? I mean. I can remember going home sometimes pretty bummed out. I can remember going home, you know, after a child passed away or, or quite honestly, we were flying a child. Um, I don't know that so much to save their life, but to get them to a hospital where perhaps their organs could be harvested. And those are tough days. Um, can, can you talk about that, the mental aspect of this? And what do you do to keep yourself, you know, motivated to do it? What do you do? Uh, well, talk about it is the best thing, right? Debrief as a crew. And there was also a program in place. So if, I think most EMS operators have. So if there was a difficult call, you pause, you debrief, you talk to each other. Best, the best talk I find is between the crews and say, yeah, that was, that was crappy, right? And, and, uh, and are you okay? Kind of thing. And then for me, it was uh, working at home. I always had a, a little farm going on myself. I'm kind of known for that. So Tom, the farmer. So I, uh, I was an EMS pilot, but also a, a farmer. I had some beef cows and I make hay and I have animals. So that's kind of my outlet, family, farm. Uh, keep working on things, right? And, and don't beat yourself up about it because um, you did what you could do at the moment. And so I think, but talking about it is, is a very, very big thing in our industry. We need to to keep talking about it, right? Right. I think that is so true. Well, back in the day, and again, I sound so old when I say this, but, you know, that, that just, there was no mechanism. You know, we, you flew, and whether it went well or it went poorly, you know, it's kind of like the Bugs Bunny Roadrunner hour, you know, we packed up our lunchbox and we went home. The next day we came back and did it again. And, you know, we didn't really debrief, we didn't talk. And I'm sure that would have helped me a lot. I think, you know, as we look forward as for you, Peter, as you get into this, I think you're going to reap the reward of, you know, a more mature understanding of mental health in our business. First responders are probably the worst. And maybe that's unfair, but historically, I will say they have been the worst. They're the ones that say, I've got to, you know, just push this down inside me. I can't let people know I'm, I'm struggling. I'm sure that you know, what Tom has already experienced, you will uh, reap the rewards of that, the business already kind of evolving into a more communicative uh, industry where we can share our feelings. That was one of my big concerns when I initially interviewed for the position and, and, and they convinced me and rightfully so that, like Tom said, you debrief with the crew and, and they also have outside staff available if if there's a particular uh, difficult call that you you went to, and then, you know, if people have children's an age that they go pick up, it affects them. Sure. It can affect them uh, terribly. So, so Stars recognizes this, and I, I guess over the years we've become more aware of uh, mental health of, of first responders and uh, and military personnel that's been deployed. So, I think it's uh, yeah. So Tom has been part of that, paving that, and it's uh, it's it's good that we. The rest of us can can benefit from that. Yeah, when I started flying, I, I can remember vividly being worried about the physical aspect of it. What I mean is, I don't want to see someone severed arm, or I don't want to see someone burned. Or, I mean, I, I just didn't want to. I, I and I was worried when I first started that that could cause me to be nauseous, and you know, maybe I maybe I won't be able to fly. Maybe I'll. But interestingly enough, none of that ever transpired. I saw all that stuff, but it never had 
much, if any, impact on my ability to fly the ship or to function. But the emotional aspect was what I had not considered, quite honestly. And, and like Utah, I grew up on a farm and we raised cattle and hogs. And so um, I really thought the mental aspect of it would be nothing. But as most things in life, the opposite was true, right? You know, uh, and it was the mental aspect that was the most difficult. Yeah, absolutely. And the, and the problem is also you take it home, right? So it doesn't just end after your shift and you clock out and it's gone. It's, it's the, and and the, we all do it, uh, pilots, medics, um, and it sticks with you for a little while, right? I think there was a lot of burnout in, in helicopter air ambulance for a long time. I think people wanted to get into it. They got into it, but it was not sustainable for a lot of different reasons. And most of it emotional, quite honestly. STARS is another organization that chooses to do a great deal of training. I'm very impressed, and not because the training is with Airbus, because not all your training is with Airbus, but the, the type training with the aircraft is with Airbus. That's impressive as well. Is that something that in, enticed you to come to STARS? Was there a commitment to training? Um, for me, it was. I mean, it's. Uh, I sense it's a company culture that, they want their staff trained properly so that, you know, when, because you are landing in uh, at scene calls and offsite at night. So um, there is some risk and um, one way to manage that risk is, is uh, training. For you, Tom, in your previous career flying air ambulance, do the regulations in Canada require a great deal of training or the regulations leave most of it up to the operator? Uh, I wouldn't know the details about that, but I think mo most operators are very keen of training you uh, very well, especially when you're on NVGs at nighttime and, and going into tight spots and whatnot. I think it's uh, it's in their best interest to train you well, but, but STARS definitely has a has a bit of a higher level on, on educating us and training us. And, and uh, I think it's so far it's been absolutely great. Yes. Yeah, I'm impressed. Uh, I mean, I, they're pretty committed. Uh, we started a week before. Uh, we're getting paid, getting put up, and and now we're down here for three and a half weeks. Then we go back for another week of training. So it's uh, it's a big commitment from Stars to to train up a new uh, a new crew. Absolutely. As you sit here today, and I'll start with you, Peter. What about the position is gives you any concern? Maybe there are no concerns. For me, it's been more of an excitement so far. Um, it's a new airframe for me. So, uh, but it's the, the training here at Airbus been been terrific, and and, and I think that's going to help me prepare. So I don't really, I wouldn't say I have any concerns. It's more of an excitement. Um, it's a little bit overwhelming now because of the SOPs and and a new aircraft and uh, and a different mission that I've been used to in the past, but. Uh, it's a very helpful crew that's down here um, helping. So awesome! It's more excitement than good than concern, fear, whatever you want to call that's it. That's super it's, perfect. And Tom, yeah, uh, nothing really. Like uh, we both, I think, very excited to be here with Stars and and uh, just the training we received. That I, if if I compare it to other to other um, uh, companies, for example. Um, it's absolutely great. Like we go, the, we go the extra mile. It seems like like they don't they don't try on anything. And the same, we we already got to fly the aircraft before we even got into the initial course to get the seat to get the feel for it. And uh, and yeah, like there's there's a lot of excitement. Like to see how we're gonna do uh, night scene calls um, on NVGs, for example. I haven't I haven't done that prior. So yeah, I think we're both really looking forward to that new new position. Right. Super. What what schedules do you all work? So our our schedule is going to be about eight days on, uh, eight days off, uh, with a travel day on each end. And I believe most bases are are set up that way. So it'll be uh, four day shifts and four night shifts. Okay, so you fly four seven a.m. to seven p.m. and then you flip to seven p.m. to seven a.m. for the next four days. Yeah, that's correct. And then uh, the one thing that's going to work out in our favor is that they they don't put uh, green on green so we'll all be flying with a pilot that's very experienced in in the operation and in the um the base out of the base that we we're flying well that's a huge advantage that quite honestly again when we look at two pilot operations versus single pilot and again all my experience is single pilot but you know the difficulty in that is when you're when you're by yourself the first time you do anything is by yourself and so when we look at operations i think that's one of the reasons fixed-wing commercial operations have overall a slightly better safety record 
is because you do have the opportunity to mentor other people. And it doesn't mean that there has to be a disparity in competency or experience in the cockpit. It can just be familiarity. So, you know, even if you have the same level of experience or maybe even more in certain aspects, flying with someone who knows the area better or knows the operations better is a huge advantage. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's why we always pair, especially at the beginning, I think first six months, we pair with an experienced pilot from the from that base. So they can guide us, right? Where is that helipad? How do we usually get in and out of there? You know, we fly in mountainous areas as well. So yeah, I think that's a huge, huge benefit for new hires. I remember we had a book and perhaps it's, it's probably electronic now, but we had a book in the aircraft and it had photograph and a description of of the hospitals or the traditional places we would go. But of course, you know, for us, about 26% of our work was scenes. So of course, there's no book for that. And, uh, but there are tricks and there are things that, you know, certain protocols or tricks is probably not the right word, but, you know, procedures that we would follow to give ourselves the best opportunity to have a successful landing and departure. You know, now with a, with a, another person on board the aircraft, you kind of have a, an organic book, right? You've got a person who not only has the information perhaps in an iPad or a, a traditional paper book, but in their mind. The area we're going to be operating in is a fairly large geographical area with very scattered uh, locations for fuel. So a scene call would require some extra planning to ensure you the fuel situation is considered, right? So Yeah, in the States anyway, and again, Canada is such a large country, in the States, most of our calls, most of our runs didn't require refueling. In other words, I flew BKs as well. I flew old BKs, A3s, A4s, B1s, B2s, C1s, uh, helicopter or ambulance. And we sat on the pad with about an hour and 30 minutes, maybe an hour and 40 minutes of fuel, unless we were IFR, and then we would fuel a little heavier. But um, we didn't have to refuel. Yeah, that adds another component to all of this, the, the ability to f- find the fuel you know and in your case perhaps do do you do you always go to an airport or a location where there's commercial fuel or do you have locations where it's simply your fuel so our base is uh, we actually have a fuel kit available and uh, there are drum locations where we can refuel out of drums if if uh, let's call it commercial fuel is uh, unavailable right yeah so i've never had to do that but i know that's a yeah that's a thing yeah, absolutely. In Canada, we're, we're, uh, the distances are a little bit uh, further apart here. And uh, if you have a sinkhole in a really uh, bad location, so you might consider taking that fuel kit and go there and get, get some of the fuel cash, maybe on the way home, maybe on the way there, depending on the weather, you know. Right. So again, in the United States, most of us carried survival gear, but it was pretty light. It was survival light. <laughs> you know, if we had a cell phone, we could pretty well survive. But in Canada, that's probably different as well. Do, do you carry equipment for survival of the crew? Do you, did you in your past uh, employ, Tom, or, or do you know if STARS does? Yeah, we have a survival kit on board, absolutely. And in the winter, uh, we, we bring sleeping bags along, right, parkas and stuff like that. So, And the same when you fly in the Arctic, you, have, you definitely have your survival gear with you because you never know if you're going to break down somewhere. And it will take a while for someone to get to you. Yeah, that's, yeah. So that's, that's a concept that really we have in the States, kind of, sort of. You know, we're much more of an urban environment. Even when you're flying in West Texas, um, you know, survival for a f- couple days in the wilderness isn't really a thing. I remember a long time ago, I flew a ship. I flew a B-3 from Dallas all the way up to uh, Alaska. And I remember going through Canada, through CanPass, Can- Canadian Passport Control or whatever. And yeah, they wanted to know how many weapons I had on board and how many rounds of ammunition. You know, originally I thought, well, that's because, you know, they want to know if I'm able to source food. But it had nothing to do with sourcing food. It had to do with making sure I didn't become food. I think until you fly in that environment, it's hard to hard to realize how big Canada is. Yeah, and especially when you go uh, further north, you go, like, say, for example, the Arctic. We always had a 12-gauge shotgun right beside the pilot's seat. And, and, and you, that was because of the polar bears. And, you, yeah, you, 
you needed to have it because that was your, your last resort, right? If you had a breakdown somewhere and you get stranded. It's such a foreign concept for most of us in America. We worry about raccoons and squirrels, uh, not polar bears and vicious, other vicious animals. Yeah, that's so cool. Do you know how presently the medical crew, do they, do you have constant link? Does a crew have constant link with uh, the 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 sending hospitals or receiving hospitals, or do you know how the crew coordinates with the medical facilities? You may not. No, it, it sounds like they, uh, they do have constant link. They, um, they, I guess they recently transitioned to a system that uses the cell towers, and because Alberta is big on oil and gas, the, the cell companies have been pretty progressive in, in putting up good coverage. So from what we hear from the other pilots is it's rare that they're unable to reach the uh, medical facilities and, and we call it the uh, emergency link center. Uh, that's the ones that coordinate with the hospital. So it's, it's rare that there's no communication. Right. When a call comes in, is there a central dispatch for all the STARS aircraft or is it regional? Uh, in Alberta, I believe there is, but then in the other provinces, there there's probably a difference. I, I would not know about Saskatchewan or Manitoba, but in Alberta, definitely is the link center that we all get passed uh, through. Okay. And then do you, so do you, and again, I'm asking questions from people who are just starting, so you may not know. When you go on duty, do all requests come to the aircraft or... Are some requests just stopped at the comm center because the weather is simply unflyable? I believe the weather calls are definitely made from the from the flight crew. Um, some of it is uh, if it's in between two locations that they decide who's available and who's not already on a call. So that's um, but weather is all flight crew. Do your receiving hospitals or your facilities have instrument approaches? to the hospitals, to the any of those locations, or do you just go to commercial facilities? I, I believe uh, there's only two copter approaches left, as we got uh, told in our training. So I think with the new NVGs we have and, and the new uh, uh, lower MOCAs we can come in on, I think they're, they're redundant, right? We, do, we don't really utilize them anymore. So I think we have two left. Okay. MOCA, minimum obstacle clearance. So are your families excited that you're, I mean, this is a, this will be a different experience. In other words, working eight days on and eight days off is a different lifestyle than working, you know, Monday through Friday, eight to five or so, especially for you, Tom, you have a farm. It's tough to leave a farm for eight days. The cows aren't going to like that. Yeah, it's, I did, I did it before, right? And uh, so I think eight days is pretty good. Uh, that's it's not too too long, right? Most companies uh, expect you to work two weeks on, two weeks off. I think that's the, the trend in the north. But uh, to do tour for eight days, I think you can set everything up. You can go and uh, yeah, for for the animals, if you prep, it's, it's it's fine, right? When you try to make some hay, it's gonna get more difficult. When you get home, it rains, <laughs> and you're like, man, it was sunny the other week. So that yeah, we'll find out this summer how that's gonna go, right? But uh, yeah. no, I think my family is pretty excited. I think they know it's a it's a good cause, right? And uh, and you're helping out the communities. And for you, Peter, is it? Yeah, it, it, I, I, for me, the uh, eight days on, eight days off rotation is, is very manageable. And, and uh, just like Tom's uh, family, my, my wife's excited that, you know, it's because she's, I've explained to her this community sense that you get from STARS, um, that she's excited that, that, be, to be, that I'm part of this program. Right. I will say, you know, back to that, I guess camaraderie and the sense of doing something worthwhile or, you know, it's, I did love the fact when you're in that business, when you're doing what you do, there is a lot of social support for that in the community. And, you know, there's really a sense of taking care of one another. And I, I did love that about that business as well. Uh, there's a lot of camaraderie. And so there is support. We just have to be able to, you know, with respect to mental health, reach out and ask for that support, which sometimes is difficult, but it is there for sure. It seems to be less less of a stigma attached to someone admitting that they're suffering mentally from whatever sure. happened. And it doesn't just have to be work, right? It could be family situation or, or, or anything. Absolutely, yeah. But I do believe that mental health has become recognized as something that's important. And yeah, I think the stigma is slowly vanishing. 
And as that happens, we'll have healthier people because they won't be, you know, stuffing all those negative emotions inside. And because I think there's a lot of evidence to show that if you are suffering emotionally, then you start to suffer physically. And, you know, you become more prone to, you know, everything, colds, you know, it's fascinating how intertwined your mind is to our body. So as we look, as we get older, certainly as I get older, I think back to how my career began and, you know, I'd like to leave a legacy. I'd like to help people excel in their careers. You know, I'd like to help people be all that they want to be, mentorship. So tell us your experience. I'll start with you, Tom, with mentorship. Oh, it started actually quite uh, early in my career because I was like you. People told me, uh, oh, you can't become a pilot, right? You know, you have classes and so forth. And uh, when I got my first job in Canada, in the bush, I had a, a base manager uh, where I got my, my first two or six job. And that mentorship literally probably saved my life several times, right? Because you don't get yourself into trouble because he would say, Tom, you know, be careful for that. Watch out for your fuel. Don't run out of fuel, et cetera, et cetera, right? And I think with a lot of young pilots, they could have, maybe we could have saved a few if we had that, that, uh, that mentorship from, from an older pilot say, hey, be careful with that when you do that job. Yep. When the customer tries to push you, push your limits, know for your sure. own limits. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I smile when I hear you say that because, you know, I, I started a little earlier than, than you. I started in 82. And although the Vietnam War had been over for about 10 years, there were still a whole lot of Vietnam era pilots in the market. And quite honestly, when I started, I didn't have any mentorship. In fact, I felt like I had the reverse of that. I felt often like people saw me as competition for a job. So, you know, people were not very, other pilots were not very helpful in my career. But again, I was 18, 19 years old. I didn't know. I just thought, well, that's just how people behave. You know, you're on your own, kid. But, you know, over the next, you know, 40 years of my life, I've learned that that isn't how it should be. And that as I progressed in my career, I did find people who were mentors. And, you know, I think it's incumbent upon us to mentor other people. And you're right. There are these little, little bits of information that are seemingly innocuous, but they're, that, those are the jewels that help us all survive. You know, for me, I would tell people, if you have a knot in your stomach, if you have a pit in your stomach, that is your brain saying, please don't kill me. That's a physiological response to an intellectual understanding that you are in harm's way and your body is screaming for you. So don't ignore that knot or that pit. And it's not going to get smaller until you take an action like land or get out of that situation for sure. So for your, you, Peter. Yeah, I, I've, been, I've been fortunate like Tom, and, uh, but it's more by luck that I've worked for companies where there are some very uh, experienced pilots that are able to mentor me. And even though I've been flying for 25 years now, I know I'm going to learn a lot from the pilots that are currently flying for stars and have been flying for 15, 20 years. Um, and, and part of what excited me about this position is five, 10 years down the road, hopefully I can, I can be a mentor to uh, a younger pilot that, that comes on board and, and, and share my experiences that's kept me alive so far. Sure. Yeah, there's so, again, it's these tiny little things, these tiny fragments of information. Honestly, in some cases, just almost a look, right? Especially when you're flying a crewed aircraft, you know, if, if you're making a decision to do something, but the person who's maybe more experienced thinks that's not a good idea, you can sense that. And it, maybe it doesn't even take a look. But then that elicits a conversation and it allows all of us to learn. I say often, the more certain I am that I am correct, the more likely I am that I'm wrong. And I think so mentorship goes two ways. Sometimes you can have a young person who maybe isn't experienced, but they have a different perspective and they can help you 
as the more experienced person learn as well. I, I, I think that's the beauty of a crewed aircraft. You know, when you're flying with another person or even the nurses and the medics or the doctors in the back, we all learn. If we're if we're open to learning, yeah, absolutely, and uh, and I think you just grow. You grow as a team, right? And and uh, yeah, there's no limit to that. So we met a, a couple of our colleagues down here, very experienced, and they're not shy about sharing their experiences already. And if you want to learn, check the ego at the door and and be a sponge and absorb from young or experienced. Absorb from all the crew and and medical crew in the back because they've still been on the aircraft for five, ten, fifteen years. So. Right. They may not be pilots, but they're not inexperienced players. Right, right. Well, or the communication specialists. I guess we used to call them dispatchers, but now in America we call them communication specialists. They have a lot of knowledge. You can almost tell by the tone of their voice maybe which way things are going, you know, if the weather's deteriorating or... Um, yeah, there's so many nonverbal cues that if we're aware or we just pay attention, we can learn a lot. Again, I loved flying air ambulance and I love mostly the interaction with people. There are people that legitimately need the help that you can provide. And without that help, especially in these faraway places in Canada where there's just not much, no services. I flew a person out of a veterinarian clinic one time. The closest medical assistance for this farmer was a vet. Yeah, when we got dispatched there, I'm like, we're going where? And they're like, you know, Billy Joe Jim Bob's vet clinic. I'm like, what? Yeah, that was the closest medical aid. So I'm sure you'll have those kind of experiences as well in Canada, if there's any medical aid. So do you know, are you using GPS, traditional GPS in those aircraft or FMSs or what, what are you using for nav radios in the aircraft? Uh, we're using the GNS 750 Garmin. And that's how the, the AH-145 comes with, I guess. And the, it seems like we, we really enjoyed it already. Peter and I, we looked at it as like, man, that's much easier than programming an FMS. Oh, yeah. Uh, to go somewhere, right, in a short notice. I love the, the 750, the Garmin 750. And clearly, like you have, you've used FMSs. And uh, FMSs are fantastic. But FMSs take, in my experience, there's if you don't read the book, Mm, you're not going to be super successful with an FMS. You have to, in fact, I've been to training courses, like three-day courses at the manufacturers for FMSs. What I love about the GNS is that I've never read the book cover to cover, but I can still operate it. That is its beauty, I believe. It's just so user-friendly. In fact, not only is it user-friendly, Garmin has a really good online training course you can take. I don't know if you've had an opportunity to do that or not, the GNS training online. Uh, we just download that free app, right? That got told to us, yeah, just download that free app and here you go, you can play at home with it and by the time you get to the course, you really, uh, you're already almost proficient with that with that GPS and I think it's absolutely great tool. Yeah, well, my experience in the past is, seven, is uh, Sikorsky 76C+, and a great aircraft, uh, universal uh, FMS, and extremely capable, but not user-friendly yep. uh, or not intuitive. So, yep. so yeah, you may take a course or read the manual, but unless you use that feature often, whereas I find uh, my, my experience with Garmin is most features are intuitive, even if you don't use them very often. There's a relatively easy way to find out how to how to uh, yep. use one of the features. or and That points to something else that I find interesting in that the Garmin, for example, this GTN 750, and Garmin's not paying us to say this, but the Garmin training is fantastic. Those apps, that online training is fantastic. But it affords you zero training credit. You get no credit for doing that. But it makes you a better pilot. It makes you more competent and confident with that box. And so sometimes in our world, I, I become a little upset when people say, yeah, but you know, how many training credits do I get for that? Or what kind of training credit is provided? To which my retort is always, does it make you a better pilot? So I do love that there are organizations out there that are progressive and put out training. They're not concerned. They are not concerned whether you get credit for it or not. They know it'll help you be a better pilot. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Peter and I both agree on that. Like we found it super cool. You could just download the app and start training for that new aircraft you're going on next, right? Like Tom said earlier, we're lucky we got a, an hour and a half flying experience and programming the, while flying a new aircraft, programming the Garmin was yes. very seamless. Yes. And I like the fact you can adjust, you know, you can change the winds, you can change the aircraft speed, you can change all those things. So, and it's fascinating to me when I first started using it, and, and actually they started that, the 450s, the 550s, they've had that on many of their models, maybe all of their models. But, you know, on the in-route segment, you may accelerate the aircraft to get to your next waypoint to start the approach. Or when you're first learning, you may need that time to be thinking about what is really coming up next. Because I think oftentimes when we train IFR, we spend a lot of time just doing approaches, approaches. And we don't necessarily do the departures or the arrival procedures, the full procedures. But this Garmin tutorial training app allows you to do the whole, you can do full approaches. You can do, you know, you don't have to do the full approach or you may do the full approach. I love it. Yeah, you I can love program it. your hold and whatever whatever you like to do, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I think it's... Uh, it's a very good app to have. I think it's one of the things that attracted me to the H145. I had an opportunity to fly when uh, Airbus was demoing it, and it's definitely showing the. This is where it's going with the cockpits, right? It's because you, you're focused on landing on a on a road at night NVG. You don't need to focus on your FMS system or your your GPS, right? It just needs to work seamless and for yes. from a cockpit resource perspective. Absolutely. Yeah, we, we spend a lot of time, Airbus spends a lot of effort making things user-friendly. And yeah, we need, to, we need to allow the pilot to do the things that pilots are asked to do. And if you're landing, especially uh, off-field, yeah, you don't need to be looking in the cockpit. You need to be looking outside. That's where the world happens. Well, I, I appreciate your time today. We, we've reached our clearance limit. I'd really like to thank Tom and Peter for being here today. You've been fantastic guests. Yeah, thanks a lot for having us. And it was really great meeting you after finally uh, so many years uh, of just listening to your podcast. And yeah, it was great to be here. Yeah, thanks, Bruce. And um, we appreciate all the effort you put into the safety and, and Airbus for supporting your your role here with the Airbus and, and, and improving safety for all the pilots. Well, thank you. The pleasure is mine, honestly. So until next time... Resume own navigation. The information provided during this podcast, Push to Talk with Bruce Webb, is made available for general information and educational purposes only. The views and opinions expressed do not necessarily represent those of Airbus Helicopters, Inc. or its affiliates.